my work is used by people in national security. I was just on the Hill talking to several congressional offices on Thursday, and the staffers told me, we feel the absence of your voice. We depend on your research. Joan Donovan is an assistant professor at Boston University and one of the world's leading experts in disinformation. She studied how people can get radicalized online and how social media can have real-world consequences, like the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Recently, Donovan said that she was silenced by her former employer, Harvard University. They stopped me from being able to use my research funding. They, uh, they took away or terminated the position of research director that I was in, and they, they got rid of my team. And since leaving Harvard, Donovan has blown the whistle. She's accusing the university of bowing to pressure from Meta, formerly known as Facebook. Donovan was increasingly critical of Meta because of the dangers she said the platform poses to society worldwide. This is probably the biggest issue coming to my mind that relates to technology. And the pace of disinformation is unfortunately accelerating. Joseph Men covers technology for The Post, and he has been closely following Donovan's case against Harvard. That's because, he says, if Meta really did influence Harvard to push Donovan out because of her research about Facebook, it could have profound implications for democracy in the U.S. and abroad. There are fewer checks on the spread of misinformation going into incredibly important elections around the world. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your host, Martine Powers, and it's Monday, December 18th. Today, we hear about the case of Joan Donovan and what her story reveals about big tech companies and their increasing power at universities. Joe will explain how these companies can influence and shape what we know or don't know about how they operate and affect our world in so many ways. Tell us a little bit about people like Joan Donovan, um, people who study disinformation and tech, and how did this work really start to take off? Well, nobody was really paying very much attention until the aftermath of the 2016 election. There was always, you know, your grandfather would, would share something on Facebook that was dumb or that was, you know, from a, an extreme political point of view. And then there was this huge reckoning after Trump's election, after it came out that there was not only sort of directed information circulating on these platforms, that it was the Russians, one of our, you know, major strategic global rivals pass along not just propaganda, but actually try to get people to show up to protest in the real world. This is like Cold War style stuff, covert action using American technology companies and American freedom of speech to achieve their own ends. And after 2016, suddenly this field, which had been pretty small in academia, exploded. And tell me more about the rise of this academic field of study and what these academics are trying to achieve by studying disinformation and technology and why they think it's important now. Well, people are coming at it from different angles. Part of it is just figuring out who is behind a given piece of propaganda. 
but a lot of it is is how they're doing it and what's effective and what spreads and how it spreads. For example, there's a Stanford-led uh, coalition that was looking back at, at 2016, and they found that the, the way that false information was spread for political reasons tended to involve both elite figures, people with big cable shows or, you know, members of big political parties, you know, household name types, and then kind of like their audience. And so there would be this kind of call and response thing going on where, you know, Alex Jones or or somebody with a big following would post something. And then they would see, you know, what people responded to, and they might shift their message. Something that the Russians do a lot of is put up a hundred different explanations for why something that the U.S. government is claiming is false. In that case, the strategy is often to just make the reader or the viewer give up and try to sort out what's actually true. There was a comparison that I thought was really interesting in your reporting from a computer science professor at Northeastern talking about the early days of the automobile um, and how that compares to the early days of tech companies and social media companies and why they need to be studied. Can, Can you talk a little bit about that comparison? Right. So the argument there is that it's parallel to drug safety and to cars, where it's important that independent researchers be able to figure out you know, how safe the cars are, how they could be made more safe. You know, you expect, I guess, Detroit automakers to do some of this research themselves, but they obviously have skin in the game, and you need university professors or others who don't have skin in the game to really look closely at these issues and bring them to light, and that helps the regulators decide what to do. It's just how things have worked, and they've saved a lot of lives. I think it's increasingly clear that that's needed for tech companies. These are sort of loaded, powerful weapons, in addition to being placed to catch up with your, you know, high school friends or enemies. The EU is going further in regulating the sort of thing. And it doesn't mean they're going to tell people what to say. You know, you, you want the academics to be able to get some of the data, which is getting harder now from these companies, and draw conclusions about how this stuff works. Joe, your reporting um, has highlighted a kind of tension here, right? That there is this expansion of the field of study around tech companies and how they work, whether they're safe, how they could be safer. But in many ways, that research is being funded by tech companies. Talk a little bit about that. Right. So this is this is fairly subtle. A comparison that keeps coming up is the tobacco industry. And the tobacco industry poured tons of money into research about nicotine and about how, you know, cigarettes work. And increasingly, you know, back then, but also now, you know, university professors are are scrabbling for funds in order to get published and get tenure. So you turn to the industry for things. That's happening in tech. It's happened in a very big way. And it wasn't really subject of scrutiny until much more recently. It can be a conflict of interest if a company will fund something like, you know, how a community is brought closer together by, you know, Facebook groups or or something similar on another network, but they won't fund uh, an investigation into, you know, the spread of fake news and how it gets accelerated. Hmm. So then that kind of brings us back to Joan Donovan, the researcher who was at Harvard up until recently, who we heard about at the top of the episode. So tell me a little bit more about her and her work and how she ended up kind of at the center of this debate about the influence of tech companies at universities. So like many people who are now 
spending a lot of time analyzing disinformation, misinformation, and how it spreads. Joan Donovan didn't start out doing that. She was uh, trained as a sociologist. Myself, I'm interested in sociology, and so I want to know how groups behave. So I'm less inclined to talk about psychology or, you know, individual motivations to join certain political parties, but I can talk a lot and at length uh, about all kinds of other garbage, um, but particularly about how things that we might consider soft messaging or persuasive messaging online is really having a, a strange effect on our politics. And we're starting to see ideas that used to be considered very, very fringe moving closer and closer to the mainstream. And so some of One of the things that she was looking at were uh, white supremacists and how they were promoting ideas about DNA testing and how this um, sort of helping them gain traction because white supremacists in the United States are a lot bigger force than they were uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And so what we need to do is, is to think about, well, how is social media going to prepare itself for the networking of white supremacists and when they build power and they show up offline at these events, are social media companies going to begin by trying to disrupt that infrastructure building uh, in the first place? Or do they wait till the violence happens and then provide that evidence to law enforcement? Unfortunately, what happens... You know, one of her core reasons for studying this is that all the tech companies promote what drives engagement because engagement is what gets them eyeballs and eyeballs is what gets them advertising money. Unfortunately, part of that dynamic is the extreme stuff, whether you love it or you hate it, is engaging. Basically, hate works. And that is one reason that white supremacists have managed to get more adherence. And, you know, in the olden days... When I was a newspaper reporter in North Carolina and there was a Klan march, 20 people showed up and we wouldn't write about it. And it's impossible to ignore now. These guys have a much bigger megaphone and then some politicians will see that and they'll try to latch on to it. Can you talk about Joan Donovan's more recent research about the power of memes and also about her work on the Facebook files as they're known? Her major book right now is called uh, Meme Wars, and it's about this sort of conflict. But we've thought a lot about memes and how memes become these important markers of which groups are winning culture wars, which groups' ideas are most visible in our society. And in particular, what we wanted to understand was how political campaigns were going to adapt to this new environment. So how they're studying memes like Pepe the Frog, a you know a innocent looking frog with human characteristics that became um, infused with you know alt right meaning. Uh, it, it came to mean anti establishment, uh, racist sentiment, uh, and it was a way for alt right people to recognize each other. A popular cartoon character turned internet meme, Pepe the Frog, has been added to the Anti-Defamation League's database of hate symbols. In a press release, the organization wrote the character had been, quote, used by haters on social media to suggest racist, anti-Semitic, or other bigoted notions as a hate symbol, end quote. That came after the frog. It was a way that people could recognize each other, and it was humorous, but also went along with some, some racist stuff. And so... 
it has become something that is necessary to study. Like, how do these memes evolve? How do they spread? Who's behind them? And so that's the sort of work she's been doing. And then the biggie, and something that might have played a role in her dismissal, she says it was, was a project called the Facebook Files or the Facebook Papers. These were contributed by a whistleblower named Francis Haugen, who worked for Facebook and was allowed to access reams and reams of documents, not all of which she read, but she downloaded them. They showed that Meta knew that a third of teenage girls felt worse about their bodies if they spent time on Instagram. You know, it showed that they knew that falsehoods were spreading, that they conducted these experiments. And Joan Donovan was the first academic to get her hands on the documents. There's something about the design of these very platforms that are enabling them to go bigger with their hate speech, to amplify hate and harassment, to amplify lies, and of course culminating in an event like January 6th, which even inside those Facebook whistleblower files, there, were, there was research that Facebook had conducted internally that suggested that they knew that their algorithms were a pipeline to radicalization. The people at the Kennedy School, where she'd already like brought a lot of attention and fame to the school, more than it had before, certainly, they were excited about it too. <laughs> and then there was this critical meeting. What was that critical meeting? What happened? Like many schools, the Harvard Kennedy School has this sort of advisory council. And this meeting of the Kennedy School Advisory Board is called the Dean's Council. And it's people who gave, I, I forget what the minimum was, maybe it's like $50,000 or something like that a year. And in what turns out to have been maybe not a good idea, they invited Joan Donovan to be the star of one of these things because she'd just gotten the Facebook files. And so they're trying to wow the donors and have Joan talk about why they're important and what she's going to do with them. She was beginning to talk about making them public. But one member of the Dean's Council was Elliot Schrag. Schrag was, you know, obviously a donor, but he was also the retired head of Facebook communications. Hmm somebody whose job was getting out a positive view of Facebook around the world. According to Joan and other people at the meeting, um, he was beside himself. And right after, and he accused her of misinterpreting the documents. And just after that, uh, a week later, uh, Dean Doug Elmendorf of the Kennedy School wrote to, to Donovan and asked her, you know, to explain some of her methodology. And uh, what's more... Uh, suspicious to Donovan um, in her filing is the, the timing of all this, because at the same time this is happening, other bits of Harvard are pursuing what would wind up being a half a billion dollar grant from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, run by Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan, uh, which is the, the maybe the largest donation in Harvard's history. So the, the questions from the dean to Joan kept going, and then she started getting more restricted about what she could do. Restricted how? Like, what were the the restrictions being put on her? You know, she's a very public figure, right? So there's lots of press appearances. And then she had um, gatherings, like, you know, conferences that she would run at the Kennedy School, um, you know, where lots of people would attend and discuss research and all these things. Um, and she was also a prodigious fundraiser. She brought in more than $5 million to to fund her work because a lot of people believe that this stuff is super important. According to her whistleblower filing, Donovan was told that she couldn't do any fundraising anymore, that she couldn't hire staff except to replace staff who had departed, and then at one point she couldn't hold a conference that would attract more than 30 people. 
Um, and the reason that she was vulnerable to this sort of thing is that she is not a tenured professor. So there is a, a long-established tradition of academic freedom among any professors, but especially tenured professors who are very hard to, to fire, so they basically get to do what they want. She wasn't even an assistant professor. Um, she was officially a researcher, but she got Harvard resources, and that's where they were. But that, you know, the dean at one point told her that she does not have academic freedom. Again, according to her whistleblower filing, Donovan is told that because she's staff, she doesn't have the freedom that professors do to say whatever they want. Hmm. So then how does how does this all wrap up? Like, how does she eventually part ways with Harvard? So there is a provision in the, you know, academic handbook at, at Harvard that says that research projects must be led by professors except at the discretion of the dean. And um, the dean told her that he had been unable to find a faculty sponsor for her research. And even though it had been going along for a while, she had to wrap up and shut down the project. There are lots of emails and texts that she included in her whistleblower complaint. And one of them says, basically, look, if you weren't such a, a big deal, <laughs> we could have let this slide. Like, if you weren't mm. drawing so much attention, if you weren't such a big name, maybe you could have continued your research here. Wow. But basically, Donovan is saying that because she's such a squeaky wheel, he felt compelled to invoke this rule that says that you need a faculty sponsor. If, you know, she hadn't been putting Harvard's name out there so much, then she may, might have gotten away with it. After the break, I talked to Joe about why tech companies have such an outsized role in funding academic research about their platforms. We'll be right back. So from how you're describing it and from what Donovan herself has described, it seems like there is this relationship between the fact that she was doing research that upset donors and the fact that she was later let go from Harvard. But I do want to pause here and just ask, like, what is Harvard's response to that? Do they agree with this timeline or this connection and essentially her accusation that she was pushed out of Harvard because Meta didn't like what she had to say about them and about Facebook? Harvard basically says it's laughable, that there's, you know, she's got this conspiracy theory and there's no evidence for it. And it's true that there isn't a smoking gun. It is more the timeline that points to this. And the ties, as I said, between Harvard and Meta are fairly extensive. There are a lot of these personal connections. And this gets to kind of the, the broader soft power issue. Like, it's not... Like Facebook says, okay, now you have to, you know, conclude that we are good for society. It's more like, well, they're giving us access to data, they're funding my research, and if I come up with a negative conclusion, are they still going to be giving me money the next time and still giving me access to the data, which is critical for any serious research? So Harvard says it had to apply the rule and that it would never do anything to pursue funding that would compromise what they believed in. Their defense for why there's academic freedom for some and not for others is that it is very hard to get to be a professor and there's quite a rigorous vetting process. And Joan and other staff researchers don't go through that. So to zoom out for a second from just Donovan's case here, I wonder if there is more 
discussion now about that tension between what it means to accept all this money from tech companies and then to use that money to research those same tech companies? I mean, do people see this as essentially a conflict of interest or are universities starting to question whether they should accept that money, even though in some cases they're talking about a lot of money here? So this is super interesting and it's come up in in different ways. And you know it's fairly complicated. I see a lot of universities rush to give up tech money. It's more like the individual professors will have their own sort of personal moral codes. And so some that used to take money from big tech won't anymore. I spoke to Professor Hani Farid at UC Berkeley. He told me that he had taken like a multi-million dollar grant from Facebook to look at the spread of fake images and fake news on his platform. And then he gave an interview because he's an expert in the field. He gave an interview, was critical of Facebook over something. And the word got back to him that Facebook was not very pleased with that comment. And so even though he wasn't being told to stop talking, he didn't like the way things were going. He felt like, you know, his interests were not aligned with Facebook. If he came up with something that suggested that Facebook should do something different, he felt like they weren't going to listen. Freed left a million dollars on the table and walked away, though Meta disputes his account of what went wrong. But at the same time, you could also look at this and say, these companies are giving over a lot of money to do this research. And that says something. And maybe that says something about their, you know, actual authentic interest in trying to make their platform safer or understand more um, the effects of the work that they do. Um, I don't know, like, what, what would you or some of these academics say to that idea that, like, yeah, but Facebook is giving over half a billion dollars to do this kind of research, and that's not nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, and that is one of Meta's major defenses, is that it would be a dereliction of duty if they didn't fund research into how their stuff works and what sort of impact it has. You know, you want there to be money for this kind of thing. And some of the studies that they have funded have wound up being somewhat critical. There was a uh, coalition called First Draft. It started back in 2015 and got money from Google and others. And they wound up saying that, you know, hey, that these companies are really responsible for a lot of the flow of bad information, harmful information. You know, so that has happened. It doesn't always happen, and, you know, they can be picky about who they fund. So one sort of bright light in all this, if you want this information out there, is the European Union rules are supposed to make it, you know, compel the companies to share information with researchers. And why did that happen? So as with many things in Europe, they are basically less allergic to regulation than Congress is. And so there are a number of things. I mean, and they they just have a different approach. We have free speech in the Constitution. Many European countries ban some kinds of speech, most notably, you know, Nazi stuff. And so they are fine with regulating things. And they have been pushing to regulate social media companies because they have been, you know, very affected by it as well. And, you know, the big social media companies are not based in Europe. So <laughs> they're based in America. So you don't have this same built-in lobbying force that comes from that. It's much easier to regulate a company from some other continent than it is to regulate your own folks. 
So getting back to the case of Joan Donovan, um, she's at Boston University now, correct? Um, and I would imagine that the expectation is that she's going to keep doing what she does there and and trying to raise awareness about um, what is happening at social media companies and how it's affecting all of us. But I wonder, what do you think this case will mean going forward for her, for other experts like her, and for our understanding of how tech is affecting our lives? It's not going to be a sudden dramatic shift, but I know that Harvard doesn't like its internal workings exposed to this degree. And I think, you know, it's rare to get a whistleblower at that level of academia. I think they're going to have to be more careful about what they tell staff researchers, professors, that I think probably faculties will pass codes of conduct that instruct professors what kind of money to take and what kind of rules they have to follow when they take that money. There will be continued scrutiny on the tech industry. It is only going to get more intense and it's going to get more subtle. It's going to look at more parts of how they influence society, not just the flow of information, but their power over legislators, regulatory capture, and their role elsewhere in society, including in academics. Joe, thank you so much for sharing this story with us. Thanks a lot for your interest. Joseph Men covers technology for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Arjun Singh. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Monica Campbell. And thank you to Mark Seibel. We have some exciting news to share. If you are a Washington Post subscriber, you can now get access to Washington Post podcasts ad-free in Apple Podcasts. If you're not yet a subscriber to the Washington Post, this is a great time to start. Just head to the link in our show notes. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.